0: Ring. Are you listening
1: In the lanes Today on Off Mike, We take a break from the news And the real world On this Christmas Eve The What The Hey comedy wonderland. troupe Brings you our rendition Of A Christmas Carol So sit back and relax And enjoy A Christmas Carol On
0: Lakeshore Public Radio As we go along Walking in a wonderland in the meadow we can build a snowman Then pretend that he is Parson Brown He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on we'll conspire As we dream by the fire to...
1: Welcome to A Christmas Carol on Lakeshore Public Radio as performed by the What The Heck comedy troupe A Christmas Carol, directed by Rob Krantz, edited by Michael Puente. Enjoy.
2: God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day.
3: Stop it! Stop it, I say! Get away from here! We'll have no singing around here, understand me? No singing!
2: A Merry Christmas, sir! Get
3: away, I say!
4: No need to wish him a Merry Christmas. That's old Scrooge!
1: Yes, that's old Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge, it is the afternoon before Christmas Day in the year of our Lord, 1844. Despite the bitterly cold weather, all of London is in a festive mood, but there is no happy expression on Ebenezer Scrooge's lined face as he closes the front door of his warehouse and returns to his office. He throws a glowing look at his clerk Bob Cratchit, Satisfied that the poor wretch is hard at work, Scrooge adjusts his spectacles. Then, without warning...
5: A Merry Christmas,
3: Uncle. God save you. Bah! Humbug! Christmas a humbug? Surely you don't mean that, Uncle. Merry Christmas, indeed. What right have you to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be dismal? You're rich enough. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer. If I had my way, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. You keep Christmas in your own way. Let me keep it in mine. I came here to ask you to spend Christmas Day with Peg and me. No.
5: But we want nothing from you, Uncle, other than your company. Won't you change your mind and have dinner with us? Good afternoon. Fred. A Merry Christmas. Good afternoon, and a Happy New Year. Bah! Humbug!
6: Pardon me, Mr. Scrooge, but there is a gentleman here to see you. What about, Cratchit? Uh, He didn't say, Uh, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Have I the pleasure of addressing uh, Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley?
3: Mr. Marley, my former partner, has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. And I have no doubt that his liberality is well represented in his surviving partner. What do you want? Well, in this festive season, Mr. Scrooge, we try to make some slight provision for the poor and destitute. Many thousands are in want of
6: common necessities.
3: Are there no prisons? Oh, plenty of prisons. And the workhouses? Are they still in operation? I wish I could say they were not. Now, how much shall I put you down for, Mr. Scrooge? Nothing. Nothing? Exactly. Let these deserving people of yours go to the establishments I have mentioned. Most of them would rather die than do that. Then let them do that and help decrease the surplus population.
6: I'm busy. Good afternoon, dear. Uh, very, very good, Mr. Scrooge. Merry Christmas to you.
3: Charity. Bah! I'm a plain rot. Uh,
6: Mr. Scrooge, sir.
3: Well, what is it, Cratchit? I was wondering... You were wondering if you could go home. Yes, sir. It's getting rather late. (laughs) Yes, go on. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. It's only once a year, sir. (laughs) A Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th day of December. I suppose you must have the whole day, but be here all the earlier the next day. Understand?
6: Yes, sir, and a Merry Christmas.
3: Christmas
1: Humber. A few minutes later, Scrooge leaves his warehouse and makes his way to his melancholy chambers, a gloomy suite of rooms. By the light of a single flickering candle, he eats his cold supper, and then, to save lighting his stove... Ebenezer Scrooge retires for the night. The minutes tick away. Scrooge sleeps uneasily, tossing from side to side. Suddenly, he awakes with a start. Walking toward him and dragging a heavy chain is a gray, dim figure of a man. It stops at the foot of the bed.
3: Who are you? What do you want with me?
7: Ask me who I was. You're... you Yes. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley.
3: But it cannot be so. You're dead.
7: You don't believe in me.
3: No. You're nothing but an undigested bit of beef, a, a, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese. You
7: are wrong, Ebenezer. I am the ghost of Jacob Marley.
3: Why do you come to me?
7: It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death.
3: No, no, I don't believe it.
7: It is then doomed to wander through the world.
3: You are chained, Jacob. Tell me, why?
7: I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I wore it of my own free will. Is its pattern
3: strange to you? I don't understand.
7: This chain I wear is as heavy as the one you are now forging. You talk
3: strangely, Jacob.
7: For seven years I have been dead, traveling the whole time. No rest, no peace, only remorse.
3: But you were always shrewd, Jacob.
7: I, too shrewd.
3: A good man of business.
7: Business. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. But I heeded none of these. Instead, I thought only of money.
3: And what is wrong with
7: making money? That is your fault, Ebenezer, as it was mine. That is why I am here tonight. That is part of my penance. I am here to warn you, to help you escape my fate. You have one chance left.
3: Tell me how this chance will come.
7: My time draws near. I must go. Tonight you will be haunted by three spirits. The first will appear when the bell strikes one. Expect the second at the stroke of two, and the third as the bell tolls three.
3: Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over with?
7: No, and heed them when they appear. Remember, it is your last chance to escape my miserable fate.
1: As Scrooge stares in frightened silence, the wrath-like figure of his deceased partner dissolves into space. Then, exhausted by the ordeal, Scrooge drops off to sleep. 12 o'clock comes. Time passes. Then, the curtain of Scrooge's bed are drawn aside, but by no visible hand. There, by the bed, stands an unearthly visitor, a strange figure, like a child. Its hair is white, and in its hand it holds a sprig of fresh green holly. Scrooge stares and then speaks.
3: Are you the spirit whose coming was told me by Jacob Marley?
2: I am. Who
3: and what are you?
2: I am the ghost of Christmas past.
3: Long past?
2: No, your past. Rise and walk with me. Where? Out through the window.
3: But we are three stories above ground. I am only a mortal.
2: Bear but a touch of my hand upon your heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this.
3: What are we to do?
2: I am going to help reclaim you. Come, walk with me out into the night, into the past.
3: Tell me, ghost of Christmas past, where are we?
2: Look down, Ebenezer, and remember back.
3: Why, why, of course. The river, the meadows, and why, there's my old school. I went there as a lad. But there is no one about.
2: It is Christmas holiday. Let us look into this study hall.
3: Empty, except for a young boy sitting at a desk, his head in his hands. Left behind. He. he's crying. Poor chap, no place to go at Christmas. Ah, now he's looking up.
2: Do you recognize him?
3: Why, it's...
2: What is his name?
3: Ebenezer Scrooge. I wish, but it's too late now.
2: What is the matter?
3: Nothing, nothing. There were some boys singing Christmas carols outside my warehouse door yesterday afternoon. I drove them away.
2: Let us see another Christmas. It is a year later. Another Christmas.
3: And again, there is the school.
2: That boy standing in the driveway, pacing up and down. It is I. And what do you see?
3: A coach coming up the driveway. Now it is stopped, and a little girl gets out. Look, she is hugging me. It's Fan, my sister.
2: Listen to what she says. I've come to bring you home, dear brother. Father's not
4: mean anymore. And he said, you're never coming back here. And from now on, we'll
2: always be together.
4: Just think, together for the first time in four
2: years. Your sister was a delicate creature. Kind, big-hearted.
3: So she was, so she was. She died comparatively young.
2: She left one child behind her.
3: Yes, Fred, my nephew.
2: He was in to wish you a Merry Christmas yesterday.
3: Yes, yes, he did so. Please take me back.
2: Not yet. There is one more shadow.
3: No more. I do not wish to see
2: it. You must. The years have passed. In this house below, look, there sits a young girl, a beautiful girl.
3: It's Belle.
2: The girl you were to marry. And there you sit next to her. A young man in your prime. Only now your face begins to show the signs of avarice. There is a greedy, restless motion in your eyes. Listen to what she is saying to you. It matters very little to you.
4: Another idol has displaced me. A golden one. You hold money more important than me or anyone else for that matter. And I'm going to grant you your wish. Free you from marrying me that is the way you wish
3: it
2: Ebenezer. i feel sorry for you
3: spirit show me no more
2: today Belle is a happy woman surrounded with her fine children those children might have been yours if you hadn't been so selfish take me back haunt me no more i beg of you don't
1: The steeple clock has just finished striking the second hour of Christmas Day. Scrooge finds himself back in his bedroom. Slowly, his door, though bolted, swings open.
3: Good morning, Ebenezer. Welcome me. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You're practically a giant, yet you have a young face. Have you never seen the like of me before? Never. Never. I have many brothers, over 1,800 of them, one for each Christmas since the very first. And you are here to take me with you? Yes. I trust you will profit by your journey. Touch my robe, Ebenezer. Those people in this church, they seem very happy. They are. They are giving thanks for all the joys brought to them during the year. And the crew of that ship over there, look, they are shaking hands with the captain. Wishing him a Merry Christmas, but but come, we have not much time left. There is still another place we must visit. It is a very poor house, in a very poor section of London. This one here, directly below us. Indeed it is. Who, may I ask, lives here? An underpaid clerk named Bob Cratchit. The Bob Cratchit who was employed by me? The very same. That woman. Those four children. His wife and family. Coming up the stairs right now, that's Cratchit. He's carrying a young boy. Ah, uh, his fifth child, Tiny Tim. He carries a crutch. Because he is crippled. But the doctors... Cratchit cannot afford a doctor. Not on 15 shillings a week. But... but shh. Listen.
6: Good afternoon, everyone.
4: And a most merry Christmas. Father, Tiny Tim. Merry,
0: merry Christmas, Wicca!
4: Tim, after me! And how did Tiny Tim behave at church?
6: As good as gold, and better.
4: I was glad to be able to go to church. That's because I wanted the people to see that I'm a cripple. Now that's a peculiar thing to say, Tiny Tim. No, it isn't. That's because I was in God's house and it was God who made the blind able to see and the lame able to walk. And when the people at church saw me and my crutch, I was hoping they would think of what God can do and that they would say a prayer for me. I, I'm i certain I must have prayed for you. And one of these days, I'm going to get well. And that'll mean I can throw away this crutch and run and play like the other boys.
6: You will, Tim, one of these days. And now, Mother, the big question, when will dinner be ready?
4: Dinner! Dinner. (coughs) It's ready right now, just about the finest goose you have ever seen. Martha, you carry it in. Tom, you fetch the potatoes and the turnips. Dick, Peter, set the chairs around the table. And I'll sit between Mother and Father.
6: This is going to be the best Christmas dinner anyone could hope for. And I am the luckiest man in the world, having such a fine family.
3: It isn't a very big goose, is it? I could eat the whole bird myself, I believe. It is all Bob Cratchit can afford. His family doesn't complain. To them, that meager goose is a sumptuous banquet. And more important, much more important, Ebenezer. Go on. They're happy. And a united group. Look at their shining faces.
6: Listen to them.
2: Oh, this, oh, this is the delicious cinema. Ah. Oh.
6: What a superb dinner we have had. The tempting meat, the delicious dressing.
2: And the plum pudding, Father. Don't forget that. Oh,
6: that plum pudding was the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since her marriage.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the compliment.
6: And now for the crowning touch. The punch! The The punch! punch! All right, here we are. Get your glasses. You, Peter, Dick, Tom, Martha, Tiny Tim... And last but far from least, you, Mother. Oh, and, and not to forget myself. There. A toast. First. first, the founder of this feast, the man who has made it possible, I give you Mr. Scrooge.
4: Hm. Mr. Scrooge, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it.
6: My dear, the children. Christmas Day.
4: He's a hard, stingy, unfeeling man. You know he is, Robert, better than anybody else.
6: My dear, remember Christmas Day.
4: I'm sorry. Very well. I'll drink his health. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas to him. To Mr. Scrooge.
2: To To Mr. Scrooge.
6: And now a toast to us. A Merry Christmas to us all. God bless us.
4: God God bless bless us. us.
3: Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. My, I see a vacant seat in the chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner. Carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirits say he will live, that he will be spared. Why concern yourself about him? Isn't it better that he die? Decrease the surplus population? But these poor people must be helped. Are there no prisons? Mind the workhouses. Are they not still in operation? Do not taunt me. It's time for us to go. No. I wish to remain. I can remain no longer. Touch my robe. We shall go. No, no, I say. Spirit, don't desert me. I need your help.
1: As Ebenezer Scrooge comes to his senses, he discovers himself standing on the street outside of his lodgings. A heavy snow is falling, blanketing a sleeping London. The wind has died down. It's still early Christmas morning.
7: Ebenezer. Ebenezer Scrooge.
3: You are the third, and last.
7: I am the ghost of Christmas yet to come.
3: You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? Yes,
7: Ebenezer, that is correct.
3: I tremble at going with you. I feel what I am to see. Come, Ebenezer. Why do we stop out here, on the street corner, spirit? Those two men
7: standing there,
3: do you know them? Why, yes. I do business with them.
7: Their conversation
3: is interesting. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Oh, I thought he'd never die. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. Well, one thing is certain. He didn't give it to charity. Are you going to his funeral? Not unless a free lunch is provided. (laughs) A very good point. Can't say that I blame you. Spirit, this dead man they were discussing, who is he? I will show you. This room, it's too dark to see.
7: In front of you is a bed, on it lies a man, the body of the man those men on the street were discussing. And no one has come to claim this body? No one, for he left not a friend behind him. Come closer and look into his face. No, look!
3: Spirit, this is a fearful place. Let us go. Look
7: at the face of this unclaimed man.
3: I would do it if I could, but I haven't the power... Let me see some tenderness connected with a death. If I don't, that lonely party in this dark room will ever haunt me. Yes, I know of
7: such a home. One where there is tenderness connected with death. Over here
3: on this poor street and in this dismal house. But this house? Why, yes, I've been here before. Bob Cratchit, my clerk, lives here. There is Mrs. Cratchit and her eldest daughter, Martha.
2: Your eyes, Mother. You'll strain them working in this bad light. I'll stop for
4: a while. I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home. It's time he was here. Rather past it.
2: But these days he walks slower than he used to, Mother.
4: I've known him to walk with tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. He was very light to carry, and your father loved him so. It was no trouble. There's your father now at the door. You're late tonight, Robert.
6: Yes, I'm late.
4: I'll get some tea for you, father.
6: Thank you, Martha.
4: You went there today, Robert?
6: Yes, I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is.
4: I'll see it soon.
6: I promised him I would walk there every Sunday. My poor tiny Tib. At last he got rid of his crutch.
4: Yes, at last he did. Poor Tiny Tim.
3: Tell me, spirit, why did Tiny Tim have to die?
7: Come, there is still another place to visit.
3: graveyard why do we pause here that tombstone read the name on it before i do answer me one question are these the shadows of the things that will be or are they the shadows of the things that may be only
7: the inscription on the tombstone
3: it reads ebenezer scrooge no spirit oh no no hear me i am not the man i was I will not be the man I must have been but for this lesson. I will honor Christmas in my heart. But will you? Oh, yes. I will try and keep it alive all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. I will not shut out the lessons that all three spirits have taught me. Oh, tell me there is hope that I may wipe away the writing
6: of this stone. holding on to the
3: bedpost i am in my own bed home those bells it must be christmas day christmas day i wonder if it really is we shall see open the window you boy down there hey what day is today my fine lad today why christmas day of course and to think The spirits have done it all in one night. What do you say, sir? Do you know the porterers in the next street?
4: I sure if I did.
3: An intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging in the window?
4: The one as big as me?
3: (laughs) What a delightful boy. Yes, the one as big as you.
4: It's hanging there now.
3: Go and buy it. I am in earnest. Here is the money. Catch Deliver it to Bob Cratchit, who lives in Golden Street in Camden Town.
4: But, sir, there will be considerable change left over.
3: Keep it, my boy, keep it.
4: Oh, thank you, sir. And, boy. Yes, sir?
3: Don't let Mr. Cratchit know who sent the turkey. It's something of a surprise. And something else. Yes, sir? A very merry Christmas to you. What is it? Why, bless my soul! Yes, yes, it is I. Your Uncle Scrooge. I've come for dinner. Now, let me in. I have a present for your good wife. From now on, I'm going to be one of your most persistent guests. I've changed, my boy. You'll see.
1: Scrooge was better than his word. He did everything he promised, and infinitely more. He became a persistent visitor to his nephew's home, and even took Fred into business with him. He raised Bob Cratchit's salary to a figure that left the bewilderment gentleman gasping. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He provided doctors for the little lad, and very soon Tiny Tim will have his wish. He will be able to throw away his crutches and run and play like the other boys. As for the three spirits... Ebenezer Scrooge never saw them again. That was due to the unchallengeable fact that Scrooge, for the rest of his days, helped keep alive the spirit of Christmas. And so, as Tiny Tim observed,
3: God God bless us, everyone!
1: you enjoyed A Christmas Carol. And here are the players of the show.
3: William Milhans, Ebenezer Scrooge,
2: Callie Rosala, The Ghost of Christmas Past, and Martha.
3: Erin Brefford, The Ghost of Christmas Presents, and a few other roles.
4: Trish Neary, Mrs. Cratchit, and a couple of the street urchins as well. Linda Gutierrez. Fan, and Tiny Tim,
6: Rob Krantz, Bob Cratchit, and Mantu, Jerry Jackson,
1: Fred,
7: Molly, and the Ghost of Christmas
1: Future, Michael Puente, narrator.
0: Merry Christmas and Happy New Year!
1: Coming up next, an encore performance of The Red-Headed League. Merry Christmas. I'm Harry Bartell. We bring you this very special Christmas Day performance of Sherlock Holmes. Now, Petrie Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Once more, we're about to visit Dr. Watson, a friend and chronicler of Sherlock Holmes, and his amazing adventures. We find him sitting in his well-warm armchair, an eager look on his face, and a humorous twinkle in his eyes.
3: Good evening, Mr. Bartow. Tonight I have my narrative all picked out. Have you ever noticed that red-headed people seem to lead interesting and eventful lives? Look at Queen Elizabeth.
1: Yes, and I heard Cleopatra was a brick top, and she certainly had a few dull
3: moments. <laughs> no, sure she didn't. Well, tonight I decided to tell you the story of the Red-Headed League. The Red-Headed League. What a curious title. No more curious than the situation it gave rise to in Sherlock Holmes's life. And as soon as your word with our listeners is out, I'll begin.
1: Well, I had an adventure tonight, and I wish you could have shared it with me. I had a steak about, oh, an inch and a half thick, tender and juicy, and with it I had a glass of Petri California Burgundy. The name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines, And now, Dr. Watson, how about the Red-Headed
3: League? Well, the adventure began one day in the year 1890, I believe it was. It was just after my marriage, and I hadn't seen much of Sherlock Holmes lately. Anyway, I burst in upon my old friend to find him deep in conversation with a stout gentleman with the fiercest red hair it has ever been my privilege to observe. I was about to withdraw when Holmes pulled me abruptly into the room and closed the door
6: behind me. Ah oh, Watson you could not have come at a better time. I am so glad to hear it Holmes. Come in come in. I was afraid that you were engaged you know. So I am my dear fellow very much so. Here is a gentleman I should like you to meet. Mr Wilson this is Dr Watson my partner and helper in my most successful cases. And I have no doubt that he will be of the utmost use to me in yours also. Watson this is Mr Jabez Wilson. How do you do Mr Wilson?
8: I'm so glad to meet you, Dr. Watson. I hope you will be of some assistance to me.
3: I always do my best to help my friend Sherlock Holmes on his cases.
6: Try the settee, Watson. I feel sure that since in the past you have shown such extraordinary interest in everything outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life, you will particularly enjoy the details of this case.
3: Ah, Holmes, you know your cases have been of the greatest interest to me. But what is this particular case about?
6: Mr. Wilson has been good enough to call upon me this morning and to begin a narrative which promises to be one of the most singular which I have listened to for some time. Perhaps, Mr. Wilson, you would be kind enough to start your tale again, not only because my friend Dr. Watson has not heard the beginning, but because I wish to be sure of every detail of fact, the case being, to the best of my belief, unique. I
8: shall be happy to do so, Mr. Holmes.
6: Can you find the advertisement that appeared in the newspaper?
8: Yes, I have it now. Here it is. This is what began it all, Dr. Watson. Here, just read it for yourself. Now, let me
3: see. uh,
8: Here? Yes, that's it. To
3: the Red-Headed League. On account of the bequest of the late Ezekiel Hopkins of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, USA, there is now another vacancy open which entitles a member of the League to a salary of four pounds a week for purely nominal services. All red-headed men who are sound in body and mind and above the age of 21 are eligible. Apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 Pope's Court, Fleet Street. Curious,
6: is it not? Well... What does it mean? That is what we must find out. But before I ask Mr. Wilson to relate any more, I ask you, Watson, to note the paper and the date.
3: It is the Morning Chronicle of April
8: 27, 1890, just two months ago.
6: Very good. Now, Mr.
8: Wilson? It is just I have been telling Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I have a small broker's business at Corbord Square of late years. He has not done more than give me a bare living. You work it alone? No, I have an assistant. Though, to tell you the truth, he should not be able to employ him if he did not agree to work for such low pay.
6: What is his name?
8: His name is Vincent Spalding. I should not wish a smarter assistant. He could earn better money elsewhere, but if he's satisfied, I'm not the one to put ideas in his head. You are indeed fortunate. In this age, I don't know that your assistant is not as
6: remarkable as your advertisement.
8: Yes, his fault too. Never was there such a fellow for photography. That is his main fault, but on the whole, he's a good worker. He is still with you, I presume, sir? Yes, he is. We've lived very quietly, the two of us, for I'm widowed with no family, and we keep a roof over our heads and pay our debts. If we do nothing more. The first thing that interrupted our dull and quiet lives was his advertisement. As a matter of fact, it was my assistant, Vincent Spotting himself, who called it to my attention. How was that? He came into the office just this day, eight weeks ago, with his very paper in his hand, and he said, Mr.
5: Wilson, I wish that I were a redheaded man.
8: Why should you wish
5: that? Why, here's another vacancy in the red-headed league. It's worth quite a little fortune to any man who qualifies, and I understand they can never find enough men with hair of just the right shade. Why, if my hair would only change to the same color
8: that your hair is,
5: I could step into a nice fortune. Mm,
8: I've never heard of it. What is it?
5: I wonder that you don't know of it, for you're eligible yourself for one of these vacancies, what, with your flaming red hair?
8: What are the vacancies worth?
5: Merely a couple of hundred pounds a year, but the work is slight, and it wouldn't interfere with other occupations.
8: Tell me about it. A couple of hundred a year would certainly come in handy.
5: As far as I can make out, the League was founded by an American millionaire who was very peculiar in his ways. He himself had red hair and wanted to make life easier for those who were like him. From all that I hear, it is splendid pay and very little to do.
8: There would be millions of red-haired men that would apply.
5: Not so many as you might think. You see, it is confined to grown men from London, and as for color... Why the man's hair must be bright, blazing, and fiery red like yours?
8: Bright, blazing, fiery red like yours. Yes, Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson, those were the very words he used. You can readily see for yourselves that my hair is a is of a full rich color. So I decided upon Spaulding's urging that I would have to have a try at it. What happened after that, Mr. Wilson? Well, sir, I went to the specified address at the appointed time, accompanied by my assistant, Spaulding. Let me say that I never hoped to see a sight such as that again. Every man who had a shade of red in his hair. I didn't think there were so many in the whole country as were brought together by that advertisement. Every shade of color, they were straw, lemon, orange, brick, Irish setter, liver clay, but as Spotting pointed out, none was as bright as my own. Well, sir, we pushed and pulled and jammed our way forward, and finally found ourselves next in line at the office door. Your experience has been a most entertaining
6: one, Wilson.
8: Indeed, yes. Pray continue with your story. The office itself was a small one, nothing peculiar about it. Behind the desk sat a man whose hair was redder than mine, as we entered the office, He shut the door and said, "Your name,
5: sir. This is Mr. Jabez Wilson, and he is willing to fill a vacancy
9: in the league. He is admirably suited for it. He has every requirement. I cannot re- recall when I had ever seen a redhead so fine. May I take hold of your hair, sir?
8: Certainly, if you like."
9: Ah, mm, no, it stays fast. It's yours, all right. I'm sorry to have had taken this precaution, but we have been twice been deceived by Whigs and once by dye. We should not like a recurrence of such deceit.
8: Oh, no, sir. My hair is my own. Indeed it is, sir.
9: Well, then, Mr. Wilson, my name is Duncan Ross, and I myself am one of the pensioners... Of the fund left by a noble benefactor, I am pleased to tell you that the position is yours. When shall you be able to enter upon your new duties?
8: It is a little awkward, for I have a business of my already. Ne-
9: Never
5: mind that, Mister Wilson. I shall look after that for you.
8: When would the hours be, Mister Ross?
9: From the hours ten till two.
8: A pawnbroker's business, for that is my trade. It's done mostly at night, so I suppose I can trust my shop to my assistant here. Yes. Yes. Spotting, you're a good man. Yes. Ten to two would suit me very well. And the pay? Four pounds a week. And the work? The work is to
9: copy out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Don't ask me why. Those are the terms of the will. You must provide your own pens, paper, and ink. But we provide the table and chair Also, you forfeit the position If you once leave the building During the hours of 10 till 2 Will you be ready tomorrow? Certainly Then goodbye, Mr. Jarvis Wilson And let me congratulate you Once more on the important position Which you have been fortunate enough to obtain And welcome to the Red-Headed League (laughs)
8: With those words, gentlemen, he piled me and my assistant out of the room. I was, at the same time, both pleased and puzzled. Pleased and puzzled? How so? Well, you see, Dr. Watson, I was pleased with my new source of income, but puzzled over why anyone should want me to copy out the encyclopedia. In fact, the nightfall I had almost... Convinced myself that it was still a great hoax. And did it prove to be a great hoax? On the contrary, the next day when I reported to work, there was an encyclopedia laid open upon the table, the page at letter A. Mr. Duncan Ross was there and he started me off, then left. At two o'clock, he returned, complimenting me upon the amount that I had written. Bade me good day, and locked the door of his office after me. How long did this procedure continue? This went on day after day, Mr. Holmes, and on Saturday, Mr. Ross came in and threw down four gold severance for my week's work. It was the same the next week and the same the week after. Every morning I was there at 10, and every afternoon I left at 2. Eight weeks passed by like this, And I had written about abbots and archery and architecture and armor and a And I hoped that with diligence I might get on to the bees before very long. It had cost me something for paper, but it was worth it. Then suddenly... Yes? The whole business came to an end. To an end? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, This morning I went to my work as usual, ten o'clock, but the door was shut and locked, with a little square of cardboard hammered onto the middle of the panel with the tack. Here it is. You can read it for yourself.
2: Hmm.
8: How
6: curious. What does it say, Holmes? The red-headed league is dissolved. June 22nd, 1890.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I cannot see that there is anything very funny. If you can do nothing other than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere.
6: Oh, no, no, no. I shouldn't miss this case for the world, but you must admit that it has a slightly comical side to it. Uh, pray, what steps did you take when you found this card on the door?
8: I was staggered, sir. I did not know what to do. So I called at the landlord and asked if he could tell me what had become of the red League. He looked at me astounded, and said,
9: Red-headed league, you say? I've never heard of such a body.
8: Well, then, can you tell me what happened to Mr. Duncan Ross?
9: What happened to him? Duncan Ross. Ross? I know of no one of that name.
8: Well, then, what happened to the gentleman who rented number
9: four? Oh, you mean the red-headed man. His name was William Morris. He was a solicitor and was using my room as a temporary convenience until his new premises were ready. Well, he moved out yesterday.
8: Where could I find him, sir?
9: He's at his new office's. Uh, Let me see. He he did tell me the address. What was it now? Ah, yes. 17 King Edward Street, near St. Paul's. 17 King Edward Street.
6: I'll just have to make a note of that, Mr. Wilson. It may help us.
8: Well, I already checked, but there was no one there either by the name of William Morris or Duncan Ross, who was a manufacturer of artificial kneecaps. Well, at that, I knew not what to do, so I decided to take the advice of my assistant, Spalding, who said simply to wait. But I became impatient, sir, in hearing that Sherlock Holmes was very clever at such things. I decided to come here for aid.
6: And you did so wisely, Mr. Wilson. From what you have said, I think it is possible that a far more serious issue may be at stake than might at first appear.
8: The issue is quite serious enough as it is. I have lost four pounds a week.
6: Dr. Watson and I will do our best to help you, Mr. Wilson. But first, a few questions. The assistant of yours, who first called your attention to the advertisement, how long had he been with you?
8: Uh, he has been with me about a month at that time. He answered an advertisement I placed on, in the paper. Was he the only applicant? No, I had dozens. Why did you pick him? Because he was intelligent and handy and would come at half wages in fact.
3: What is he like, this Vincent Spaulding?
8: Uh, let me think. Uh, small, stout, built, very quick in his ways, no hair on his face. Well, he's not short of 30. He has a white splash of acid upon his forehead.
6: Acid, you say? Yes,
8: I thought as much. Have
6: you ever observed that his ears are pierced for earrings?
8: Ah, yes, sir. He told me that a gypsy had done it for him when he was a lad. Hmm. He is still with you. Oh, yes, sir. I've only just left him. But there at the clock strikes seven. Must be on my way. Will there be anything else you wish to ask me, gentlemen?
3: Not
6: for my part, Wilson.
8: Yes, I have one more
6: question. All the mornings that you were out... Did your assistant attend to your business in your absence?
8: Yes, sir, and he's honest and careful enough. Nothing to complain of, sir. There's never very much to do of a morning.
6: I believe you have given us all the information we need, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion on the subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to a conclusion. Good day, Mr. Wilson.
8: Good day, gentlemen. Dr. Watson, Mr. Holmes.
6: Watson, what do you make of it all?
3: I make nothing of it. It is a most mysterious business.
6: As a rule, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. But we must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do, then? Can your patience spare you for a few hours?
3: My practice leaves me plenty of free time. But what are we to be
6: about, Holmes? We are going to the pawnbroker shop of Mr. Jabez Wilson. Whatever for? Try to investigate, my dear Watson. To investigate. There, Watson. See the three gilt balls? This is the place.
3: Yes, Wilson's name is painted over the door. But now that you are here,
6: what are you going to do? First, an experiment. Pounding your stick on the pavement? And now to knock on the door, and I hope that this Spalding fellow answers. Won't you step in, gentlemen? Thank you, but I only wish to ask you how one would go from here to the Strand.
5: Oh, third right, fourth left, sir.
6: Smart fellow, that. He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London, and for daring I'm not sure that he has not a claim to be third. I've known something of him before.
3: Evidently, Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the Red-Headed League. I am sure that you inquired your way merely that you might see him.
6: Not him. The knees of his trousers. And what did you see? What I expected to see. Why did you beat the pavement before knocking on the door? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in an enemy's country. We know something of this city square. Let us now explore the parts which lie behind it. Let me see. I should just like to remember the exact order of the houses here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. There is a tobacconist, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the city and suburban bank, the restaurant and the carriage builders. That carries us right onto the other block on which stands the pawnbroker's establishment of our friend, Mr. J. Bez Wilson. And now, Doctor, your part of the work is finished, for the time at least. This business of Wilson's is serious. A considerable crime is in contemplation. I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it, but today being Saturday rather complicates matters. I shall want your help tonight, Watson." Will you come to Baker Street at ten, and, I say, Doctor, there may be some little danger, so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. Goodbye for now, then, Watson. I'm so glad that you were prompt, Watson.
3: I could not be anything else. I was so intrigued.
6: I think that your curiosity will soon be satisfied. Will you not tell me, Holmes, where we are going or whom we seek? I shall gladly do both. We are now going to the Coburg branch of the city and suburban bank. The man we seek is none other than John Clay. John Clay? You mean the thief and forger who's escaped the police so many times? The same. And you may add murderer to your list. His brain is as cunning as his fingers. And though we meet signs of him at every turn, we have never known where to meet the man. Why, all
3: of London has been on his trail for
6: years. I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you to him tonight. Here, Watson. Through here, right ho. Is this the cellar of the bank, then? It is. We must act quickly, for time is of the essence. I perceive that the ceiling is thick enough. We are not vulnerable from above.
3: Nor from below. The
6: floor seems... Why, dear me! A hollow sound. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, Watson. Sit on one of those boxes while I shade the light. What is in these great packing cases, Holmes? The 30,000 Napoleons of French gold from the Bank of France. What? It has become known that this gold was being stored, completely packed, in the cellar where we now find ourselves. The directors of the bank began to have misgivings about leaving so large a quantity of gold about. And now it appears that the fears were well justified. The bank is to be robbed tonight, if I am not mistaken. Indeed? And only the two of us to stop the thieves? I have requested an inspector and two officers to be at the one possible retreat, the front door. How, then, will the thieves enter? Through a hole in the floor. What? Oh, you, huddle in the shadows. One of the stones is moving. They are coming. <laughs> It's all clear, Archie. Have you the chisels and the bags? I have you, Clay. Come here, Watson! Watson! Jump, Archie, jump! We'll swing! It's no use, John Clay. You have no chance at all. The devil, you say? (laughs) You did not act with Sherlock Holmes. It is no
5: use. So I see. I fancy my friend has escaped, though. I struggle with you gave him that chance. You are not totally successful.
3: The door was guarded. There are three men waiting for him. Oh, indeed. You seem
5: to have figured this out completely. I must compliment you.
6: And I, you. Your red-headed idea was very clever.
3: Ah, Clay, you'll be seeing your friend soon. In court, you scoundrel. I... Beg
5: your pardon. You may not be aware that John Clay has royal blood in his veins. Have the goodness when you address me to always say, sir, and please.
6: <laughs> As you wish, John Clay. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs, sir, where we could please get a cab, sir, to carry your highness to the police station, sir, sir. You see, Watson, it was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the league must be to get our not-too-bright friend Jabez Wilson out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but doubtless there is not a better. The plot was suggested, I am sure, by Wilson's own hair. The four pounds a week was a lure, and who could not afford four pounds who was gambling on 30,000? They put in the advertisement. One accomplice posed as Duncan Ross. The other made sure Wilson would apply. From the time I heard that the assistant had come for half wages, I knew he had some strange motive for securing the station. How could you guess what the motive was? The man's business is very small. It must be then that the house itself was of value. When I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his vanishing constantly into the cellar, I'd realized at once that that was it. Yes, I remember now. Wilson mentioned that. The description of the assistant convinced me that this was the notorious clay himself. But what could he be doing in the cellar of a pawnbroker, I asked myself. Why, digging a tunnel, of course. That was the only thing that would require his constant steady attention for hours each day over a period of months. Then I wondered, what building could he be tunneling into? Our visit to the actual scene itself showed me that. Remember, I observed that the bank was right around the corner from Wilson's. Now that you mention it, I do indeed. I surprised you, I recall, by tapping my stick on the pavement. That was to determine whether the cellar extended to the front of the buildings. Then I paid a call on John Clay himself, at that time known to us as Spaulding, the assistant.
3: Yes, you said you wanted to observe the knees of his trousers.
6: What did you see? You yourself must have noticed how worn, wrinkled, and stained they were, which was a natural consequence of his burrowing. All my conclusions assembled, I called Scotland Yard and the bank, and secured permission and a key for our admittance. How could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight? They closed their league offices. That was a sign that they no longer cared about Mr. Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words, they had completed their tunnel, but it was essential that they should use it soon, as it might be discovered. Saturday would suit them best As it would give them two days for their escape For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight
3: Ah, you reasoned it out beautifully It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings
6: true It was indeed remarkable, Sherlock Holmes Remarkable On the contrary It was elementary, my dear Watson Elementary
0: Bells ring.
1: We hope you enjoyed our rendition of A Christmas Carol and Sherlock Holmes' The Red-Headed League as performed by the What The Heck Comedy Walking Troupe. We dedicate this performance to our late member, Dan Janik. You can hear this performance again by going to lakeshorepublicradio.org.
0: Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Walking in a wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman Then pretend that he is Parson Brown He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town